A young preacher once concluded his message by challenging the congregation to do more and try harder for God. Just before the closing prayer, he recited Rudyard Kipling's famous poem, If. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. And as he delivered this poem, the young preacher could feel his sermon soar with rhetorical strength. And then he came to the closing lines. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything in it, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son. And just before this pastor bowed his head for prayer, a voice on the back row could be heard shouting back, What if you can't? What if you can't? Is there any good news for people who can't? We come to church and we hear Deuteronomy chapter 6, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. What if you can't? We hear Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. What if you can't? We hear Philippians chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, present your request to God. And we think, what if you can't? What if you can't? Is there help for people who feel they can't? Yes, thank God. Yes, yes, our Advent reading today is for people who feel they can't. Because our Advent reading today speaks of an invasion of divine grace. Did you hear? For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, all people, all types of people, all kinds of people, all ethnicities of people, all nationalities of people, all people. The invasion of grace has appeared with a salvation that trains us. It is a salvation that teaches us. It's a salvation that that walks with us and trains us to say no to compromise and yes to Christ. It's an invasion which supplies us with sustaining power, sustaining strength, while we await the final invasion when Christ will restore all things in the new heavens and the new earth. What we read today is nothing less than the invasion of divine grace. Yes, church family, Christmas is help for people who can't. If you'll help me, I won't have to work so hard. <laughs> Amen? Amen? 
We read in Matthew, or we heard Matthew say that he will save the people from their sin. Now, in our worldview class earlier this semester um, on Wednesday nights, we learned that particular ailments require particular antidotes, which means that increasing the air pressure in your tires will not fix a damaged fuel pump. Aspirin can't dissolve a tumor. Cutting up credit cards will not wipe out debt that is already owed. If your water pipes are leaking, you need a plumber, not an oncologist. And a plumber can't fix cancer. Singular problems require singular solutions. And our singular problem is sin. And if, if, if you don't believe that, then Christmas is meaningless. Because the scripture says he will save the people from their sin. And he came so that we could sing, O come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. That's why he came. He came in the flesh to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He came. He invaded. The invasion of grace is for more than eternal joy in the new heavens and the new earth. I tell you, it is for sustainable joy now. Now. Sustainable joy. Sustainable holiness now. Sustainable godliness now. Sustainable love now. Sustainable grace now. Now. Oh, oh, I smell a big idea here. Can you? Yeah. Christmas is the invasion of divine grace for our sustainable grace. Do you believe that? Say that with me. Christmas is the invasion of divine grace for our sustainable grace. Does anybody here need sustainable grace today? Do you? Anybody, anybody here find it harder to be a Christian you know, out there than in here? <laughs> anybody need sustainable grace to face an unfriendly world? So, so our constant need for sustaining grace, our constant need, our constant craving for sustaining grace, sustaining love, sustaining holiness, our constant need for sustaining grace, that's the subject of our sermon today. And guess where I found that sermon? Nia, how did you know? <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, let's go there, <laughs> since you brought it up. <laughs> oh, yeah, we are, we are here in our last chapter of this long walk through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Meet me in Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13. And Nehemiah chapter 13 is why we need Christmas. You're going to see that. That's, that's um, my task today, 
is to expose what was written in this chapter so that we will know why we need Christmas, why we need the only one who can save us from our sins. Now, Nehemiah chapters 1 through 6 tell the story of how this Hebrew official of the Persian Empire was called by God to go to Jerusalem uh, in the year 455 B.C. And um, Nehemiah was called by God to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, 445 B.C., excuse me. And 450 years before Christ, Nehemiah came, and the city was in rubble from the Babylonian captivity. And chapters 1 through 6 tell of the rebuilding of the wall. Chapters 7 through 12 tell of the rebuilding of the community. And so it, in chapter 12, Jerusalem, with a rebuilt wall and a rededicated people, teamed and sang and celebrated the dawning of a new day. The temple was staffed with Levites and worship was vibrant. And uh, chapter 13, verses 1 through 3 say they read from the book of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And people gave their tithes and their offerings to the house of God. And, and they had promised in Nehemiah 10, 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. And, and, and Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 43 says, The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And as I'm reading this, I'm just thinking, And they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> Credits roll. Nehemiah's book is going to be a New York Times bestseller. He's going to go on a speaking tour and give leadership seminars, uh, how he did it, and I wish. Let's pick it up in Nehemiah 13, verses 4 to 14. Verse 4 says, uh, now in the face of this, some of your translations say now before this, but I, I, made, an in, I made a translation decision here for us, Okay. So, and I think you'll see why in just a minute. Now, in the face of this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests while this was taking place i was not in jerusalem for in the 32nd year of artaxerxes king of babylon i went to the king and after some time i asked leave of the king and came to jerusalem and then i discovered the evil that eliashib had done for tobiah Preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. 
And then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations that all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shalemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Matanaiah, for they were considered reliable. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. This is God's word. So this chapter screams, what if you can't? What if you can't? And I just wonder how many times we've, we've said to God, I will never do that again. You fill in the blank. And yet we do. And, and it's, you know, you read this and it's like, Israel's addicted. They're just addicted to compromise. And if this chapter does not convince you of systemic sin in our world, I don't know what will. The Bible is candidly honest, candidly honest in both its assessment of human sin and its offer of grace in Christ. So this is a problem-solution sermon. And I want us to explore both here this morning. First, the problem. The problem? Well, I think you've sensed already that chapter 13 is about the problem of relentless worldly compromise. Relentless worldly compromise. So, so after the wall was rebuilt and after Israel regathered and after Jerusalem returned to life, Nehemiah returned to Susa the capital city of Persia. He'd been in Jerusalem 12 years, uh, from the years 445 B.C. to 433 B.C., but he returns to the king. He needs to. He's got to report back to the boss. To, he, he's, he has to do that to reaffirm his allegiance to the crown. And so he leaves. And while the cat's away, yeah, Eliashib the priest, that little mouse, he, but he was in charge of the temple's large chamber rooms. Verse 5 says that he invited Tobiah to live in one of the large rooms. Oh, how spacious. This would make a really nice apartment. Come on in, Tobiah. Here's your key. Now, you remember Tobiah, don't you? Yeah. He was one of three sworn enemies of Nehemiah. There's Sanballat, the Samaritan, and Geshem, the Arab, and then there's Tobiah the Ammonite, and those three 
did everything in their power to obstruct the construction of the wall. And so, you know, now Eliashib's going, well, you know, if I can't keep them from doing the work of the wall on the outside, I'll just, I mean, he's going he's gonna to sneak his way in. And Eliashib, the priest, gives quarter to Nehemiah's sworn enemy. Why would he do that? Well, look at verse 4. Verse 4 says that he was related to Tobiah. So there was some, uh, there was some relationship there that the text does not specify. But both of them assumed that Nehemiah wasn't coming back anytime soon. So he made space for someone who did not share the faith. Think about it. An unbeliever now occupies space where the sacred offerings were meant to stay. And then, because the offerings were not getting to where they were supposed to be, namely the legitimate, hardworking, ordained Levite priests, well, these these priests had to leave the temple to go back home to their fields so that they could eat, because you got to eat and live indoors. Verse 10 says that they had fled each to his field. That's what that means there. Unbelievable. Think about this. So an enemy of God now resides not just in Judah and not just in the city of Jerusalem, but in the temple. Furthermore, those ordained to serve the temple are absent because they've got to, they've got to eat. They've got to, so they go back home. And so as a result, there's nothing going on. Temple's closed. Temple's closed. Huh. It's a problem, a problem of unrelenting worldly compromise. It, it's a problem which the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Bad company corrupts good morals. Jesus talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount. You, you are the salt of the earth. So our ministry is to preserve, to, to uh, salt back then actually retarded rot. So salt was a preservative. Salt, of course, is an enhancer of flavor. And yet, at the same time, Jesus warns that while you are to interact with the world, you can't become the world. And that's what's happening here. In our series, beloved, we have asked the question, is there room in your heart for a burden from God? It's been a challenging question. Is there space in our heart? For a burden from God. Hear me. Tobiah is not the kind of burden God wants you to make space for. Because Tobiah is a dedicated foe of God. He's a snake. And he will slither inside to do what he couldn't do from the outside. Let me get personal. Is there a Tobiah in your life? Is there a Tobiah in your texting? Is there a Tobiah in your private chat room? 
Are you flirting with Tobiah? Church family, God will not share a room in his temple with Tobiah. Why would you? A few years ago, Sarah and I had dinner out at a restaurant in Door County. Um, and the first time we went there, we went to this uh, place. Was, I, I think it was called The Mission. I thought, that's a neat name for a restaurant. Well, we come to find out it used to be a church. And so as we dined, you know, I was looking around. I thought, oh, I can see. Okay, I can see. I can see, you know, how this used to be a church. And uh, well, this is a pleasant atmosphere and nice summer evening and delicious food and this used to be a church. And then it dawned on me, this used to be a church. Hmm. How does a church become a restaurant? Hmm. And then the word drift came to my mind. Hmm. One author wrote, one of the most striking evidences of sinful human nature is the universal propensity for compromise for downward drift. Paul said to Timothy, train yourself in godliness. Meaning godliness takes intentionality, resolve, and energy. People do not drift toward godliness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate to godliness, prayer, and obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift. We, we, we drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch to prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We drift to godlessness, then convince ourselves we're liberated. And in Nehemiah 13, a, pre, a priest, you've got to watch those preachers, church. A priest drifts into an evil alliance, and then it, it affects other spiritual leaders which eventually affects a congregation and then a nation and, and then a holy facility dedicated to God becomes a shell. That's what's in chapter 13. And then one day, a Persian military escort appears. Guess who? <laughs> Nehemiah's back. Nehemiah's back. He's been away from the holy city for so long and comes into the gates and he wants to go up to pray to the Temple Mount. And, you know, as he makes his way up and he realizes something's not right. Something, why is, why is there no smoke coming from the altar? There's supposed to be smoke coming from the altar from this. Wait a minute. 
Where, where are the priests? What, 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 why, why is there? It's too quiet. It's too quiet. What's, what? The store's closed. Why, why is this closed? And, 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 and you know, someone you know, points Nehemiah to the chamber, right? And he goes inside the chamber, and from where you are, you hear this loud scream. And the very next thing you see coming out the door is a lamp being flung out the room, and then, a, and then followed by a table, and then piles of clothing are just flying out of the doorway and a mattress and a couch and you hear this scurry ah, it's in the text <laughs> this is an expository sermon look at verses 8 and 9 Yes, ma'am, I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chambers. And then I gave orders that cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. And then Nehemiah confronted the officials. What are you doing? How can you tolerate this? You signed a covenant. You signed a covenant along with 42,000 other people. We will not neglect the house of God. Well, you have. Verse 11, I confronted the officials. Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Get back to your responsibilities in worship. And then, and then in verse 15, and, and these you know, horrifying discoveries are prefaced with the phrase, in those days, in those days, in, the, in those days, verse 15. Nehemiah, so while the temple doors were closed on the Sabbath, the retail stores were open. They? Com commerce and business and buying and selling. I mean, he is horrified. Because the Sabbath was God's gift to, to, to the people, to his chosen people. The Sabbath was, was so unique among uh, the, uh, the nations of the world. No other nation had this, this gift of Sabbath uh, given to them. It didn't originate from any other nation. It just originated from Israel. And here it's being profaned in, in verses 17 and 18. Nehemiah calls it an evil thing. What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? And did not our, your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And, and, and then the next week, get this, the next week the, the merchants... So the gates were closed on the Sabbath, the retail stopped on the Sabbath, but then the merchants, they, they just started loitering outside the gates, so they get a jump on the end of the Sabbath for, for the week's business. And, and Nehemiah, go away, Nehemiah said. Go away, verse 21. You, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Oh, and then in those days, 
Nehemiah discovered that God's people had intermarried with idol worshipers. So Ashdod, Ammon, Moab, these were unconverted people groups who refused faith in the one true God of Israel. So, So the issue was not interracial marriage, but interfaith marriage. Nowhere in the Bible is interracial marriage prohibited. The point of Nehemiah 13.26 is that Solomon was compromised by marital relationships that did not honor the one true God. That happened 500 years prior to this in Nehemiah 13, and now it's happening again. And, and, and the significance here is that at that, at that time in, in salvation history, Hebrew was the only language in which the book of Moses was read and taught. So, you know, there was not a Persian standard version of the Old Testament. There was not a Babylonian standard version. There was not. It was Hebrew or nothing. So, an entire generation was about to emerge not knowing Hebrew. And if you don't know Hebrew... At that time in salvation history, you couldn't know the Word of God. And if you don't know the Word of God, you don't know God. And if you don't know God, you don't know yourself. I mean, Nehemiah is like at wit's end. And this is such a grievous (laughs) scenario. And, And so you can tell the difference between Ezra the priest and Nehemiah the governor. Ezra the priest is so grieved by this compromise, he, he just, you know, he, he pulls the hair out of his own beard. He's just so grieved by it, okay? Nehemiah the governor is not a priest. He is a governor, and therefore he hunts the rascals down and pulls the hair out of their beards. Okay? Yeah, it's in the Bible. Look at verse 25. I confronted cursed, beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. Okay? Description, not prescription. Okay. <laughs> and Nehemiah 12, Nehemiah 12 ends in celebration. Nehemiah, and, and, and then the book ends. <laughs> Nehemiah 13 ends in desperation. Nehemiah 12 ends in, in great joy. Nehemiah 13 ends with great evil great evil there there's a cascade of evil in 13 you you see evil becomes great evil which becomes all this great evil and the chapter concludes telling of a compromised people a commercialized holy day and a corrupted worship facility And no wonder Nehemiah prays three times in this chapter. Oh, God, remember me. Remember me. That's how the book concludes. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Oh, there's been a lot of commentary ink spilled over. What did he mean by that? But I'll tell you the one possibility that resonated with me 
Why would Nehemiah say, remember me three times? Psalm 8947. Psalm 8947. The psalmist says, Oh God, remember how short my time is. Literally, literally. Remember, I, how short. It's as if Nehemiah saying, God, I am not a young man anymore. I'm tired. Are you tired? I'm tired. It's a thousand miles from Persia to Jerusalem. It takes months to get here. It's exhausting. I'm tired. I'm tired of, I'm tired of the fight. I'm tired of the fight. Your people promised we will not neglect the house of God, and yet 12 years later, they have systematically failed at every promise. God, what's the point of building a wall to defend the city if the people of your city are going to allow your enemies free housing inside your temple? I mean, we may be back in the promised land, but we're still in exile. And we're doing the same things that our ancestors did that got us there. And I don't have enough. Here it is. I don't have enough zeal to keep Israel holy. Nehemiah's best leadership efforts left us with chapter 13. Have you ever wanted someone to change more than they want to change? How's that working for you? Now you know why we sing that hymn of Advent. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. What if you can't? What if you can't? Will, will Israel ever be able to worship and obey in the land over an extended period of time? How can Israel be distinct in the land of promise if they don't worship the only true God of the promise? And what's the point of going to the promised land if they're going to live like Persians? And why would God even care? Judah, Judah here is the size of Champaign County. It's a little city, a little territory, a little people group. Why would God even care? Well, Advent tells us why. It's because much can come from little when it's dedicated to God. Because in God's point of view, there are no little people. So the problem of worldly compromise is met with the solution of saving grace. And saving grace has appeared in order to give us sustainable grace. In Nehemiah 13, 31, we're left longing for a true king. A king who will do what Nehemiah just simply couldn't do. He just couldn't do it. A king who can not only rescue us, but one who can give us such a sustainable grace that our hearts become a source of grace as he takes his grace, pours it through us, and we help sustain others. A king who will break in from the outside. 
a king who will live with us, a king who will die for us, a king who will ascend to the heavenly realm to send his regal spirit into our hearts so that we can live sustainable lives for Christ. Some of you are here today and you've relapsed. This is your story. Well, it's our story. And you're wondering if God is saying, I'm done, I'm through, you've crossed the line too many times. Well, I've come here to tell you the good news of Isaiah chapter 54, verse 7. For a brief moment I deserted you, thus saith the Lord, but with great compassion I will gather you. I've come here to give you some Christmas news, church. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's what I'm here to tell you today. I'm here to tell you that that king is Jesus, and he's come to save us from our sin. To say that you're a sinner is not just to confess to some wrong behaviors, but to admit that you have a condition Sin is a condition of your nature. And because it is, you can't escape it. You have no ability to run from yourself. And the Christmas story confronts us with our inability. Because if we had any ability whatsoever to save ourselves from sin, the birth of Jesus would not have been necessary. Had, had Nehemiah been able to fix Israel, Jesus would not have had to come. If chapter 12 is were the end of this story, we wouldn't need Christmas. But Christmas reminds us that hopelessness is the only doorway to blessed hope. And it's the only time when you've got to give up on yourself so that you can seek and celebrate Him. And God in His holy love offers you His Son, Jesus. Hope is not a thing. Hope is is a person, and his name is Emmanuel. And Windsor Road Christian Church is a congregation of people who have given up on themselves so that we could fully depend upon him. And let me tell you this, Jesus won't share the manger with Tobiah. And he didn't share the cross with him either. Because the one who was born to save did so through his death. And he died so that we could have life. Can you imagine a community so changed by sustaining grace that they're, that they're hungry to do good? Can you imagine a community so changed by grace that the reason they shun sin is not because they're holier than thou or legalistic. It's, it's that they simply find sin uninteresting. Can you imagine a community that surrounds those who relapse and offer prayer, support, and a word of restoration, even a word of gentle admonition? Can you imagine a community dedicated and devoted to the purposes of God? A community that says we can't, but we know the one who can. We know the one who can. Now that's not just a community. That is a temple. A temple indwelled by the Holy One Himself. And He who began a good work in you 
will be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. He is our hope. Amen.